This is Pastoring Out Loud, a podcast for Bethlehem Baptist Church's South Campus in Lakeville, Minnesota. Are you interested in learning more about our church? Go to Bethlehem.Church forward slash South. What was that loud click on the uh, on the recording? I Nick, think I broke something. Click on <laughs> Nick. Nick. Nick's. The, I'm not sure if that was picked part up. Part of not, the microphone stand that is now in my hand. <laughs> Nick was fidgeting while I was going through my monologue. Sorry, Ethan. <laughs> Sorry, Ethan. Ethan's still not here. Still doing what he does. Uh, random question of the day, guys. Um, talk to me about car maintenance. How's how's how are your cars Gosh. doing? I don't want to talk about. I've got that a Toyota. Right <laughs> um, you've got a Subaru. You've got a Chevy. Mm-hmm. You have a Chevy, Dave. Mm-hmm. Uh, my Toyota is doing great. The roof leaks a little bit, but I'm hoping to get that fixed before sabbatical. Like just when there's like a hard driving rain, like like right above the door, like just leaks a little bit. It's fine. Not a big deal. I was in there once with you and that was happening. Oh, that's right. You were trying to dig out twigs and stuff. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So how, how's your car doing? I mean, the engine's running fine. There's a couple of... Uh, Things that need to be addressed, and will they have a great? Won't be cheap. Will they have a great bearing on whether or not you'll be able to drive your car? I see what you did there. That's good. Okay, Dave, how's your uh, vehicle? It's too soon, Daniel. Too soon. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, is there? Just a, just had a really big repair, mm. big enough to make me consider if it was time to move on. Mm. Alas, the used car market is. In complete shambles right now as well. So <laughs> I was between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> between a Chevy Suburban and a... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we got it for such a good deal that it's 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 fine, but it's still hard. Still hard. I'm, wor- I'm working through it emotionally. My dad has always said that cars are just endless money pits. It's true. So <laughs> I mean, my car is... Uh, I've always just been A to B. Had to be. What was your first car, Nick? My first car was yeah. a 1985 Cutlass Sierra. Oh. Did <laughs> you like it? I mean, it was in high school, and it was a car to get me to my friends' houses and right. to school. And what was your first? So it was great. <laughs> what was your first car, Dave? Driving in my souped-up Tempo. It was a Ford Tempo. What what year? <laughs> I don't remember. So ancient as to be name, uh, nameless. Yeah. I had a uh, 97 Toyota Corolla that uh, the last time I checked... Is on its third owner. I gave it away when I moved to it's still to college. I think it has five hundred thousand miles on it with its second engine. Wow! It is like a tank. Um, might be a third engine now. So, Toyota. We used to call my car in high school. It, its nickname was RB, which was short for Rust Bucket. Actually, I got to take that back. That's the first car that I bought for myself. But I had an eighty-five Grand Wagoneer. That Ooh. was like purchased for like nothing by my parents for me. And that like, it was like, I think they paid 50 bucks for it. And it was like the the carburetor and the exhaust and the muffler was so bad that like at this distance from each other, even shouting, <laughs> you could not hear the other person. <laughs> so you could only have conversation when the car was like pulled up to a, like a stop sign or a, a light. Yep. And then as soon as you start going, conversation was over. So didn't didn't keep that car very long. Did you guys have a you or your friends have nicknames for your cars back in back in high school or college? Yeah. What, what was, was yours? RB. Oh, you Thanks for that. listening. Yeah, we did sorry. I'm I'm <laughs> bad. You didn't I I wasn't actively listening. What was yours? Uh I don't think I had one for myself. I remember we used to call Kelly's car that she had right when we got married, Roxy. It was a little uh Roxanne Thorson, y'all. 
It was a it was a little Saturn something. Boxy. My wife had a Saturn SL2 with the half door that opened up in the back. The doors oh, open wow. like this. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. She uh, she enjoyed that. Mine uh, the the wood paneling on the Grand Wagoneer meant that my car was woody. Mm. Yeah. And then um, the '97 Toyota. I'm not going to share what its name was. Fair uh, enough. At least what's well, not so much my name for it, but my friends, few of which I have anymore. We're here to talk about the sovereignty of God. Uh, no segue. Smooth. Yeah, no segue. Um, so we got, um, you know, uh, probably two different people just asking questions about the our understanding of the sovereignty of God, the free will of man, and things like Calvinism, Arminianism. Certainly Bethlehem has historically been known as a Calvinist church, um, probably even, I'm not sure about prior to John Piper coming, um, but certainly after John came, um, John was known at Bethel, uh, university as a, a staunch defender of reformed, uh, doctrine. So now here we are characters of that. And we're all, are you a Calvinist? Nick? I, I, I am. That's good. Are you a Calvinist, Dave? Yep. Okay. I am too. Uh, are there any official documents that our church adheres to or that we as elders adhere to that are formally Calvinistic in their in their uh, understanding of, of the Bible? Yep, our elder affirmation of faith. So to be an elder at Bethlehem, you need to agree to that. Yep. And it is explicitly Calvinistic and... Reformed in its understanding of the sovereignty of God in all things, and specifically, if you want to narrow it from all things, in salvation. Yeah, so typically uh, Christians will say, of course God is sovereign, and then there are layers in which his sovereignty uh, interacts differently about the you know salvation of men and women, and Calvinists tend to be those with various shades that say the kind of sovereignty that he has over everything else, he also has over salvation. So we figured we'd do a couple episodes, one that's a little more general about the nature of God's sovereignty, and then a part two um, that digs a little bit deeper into um, into that stuff, So um, and into salvation, doctrine of salvation. Um, so I've got the elder affirmation of faith open here. So we adhere to this together as elders. Does the congregational affirmation of faith, our, our church's official statement of faith, have anything about these kinds of doctrines in it? Uh, no, <clears throat> it doesn't. And so, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so in other words, to be a member at Bethlehem, you don't have to be a Calvinist. Um, you have to affirm the member affirmation of faith, which is considerably... Uh, I don't know what the word is. More, more broad. More, more broad, more mm-hmm. basic, I guess, than the elder affirmation of faith. Yep. Um, so you do have to affirm things like the Trinity, you know, the deity of Christ, um, the inerrancy of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, believer's baptism. Believer's baptism, things like that. Um, but then as far as the specifics of, you know, how God's part and man's part in in the doctrines of salvation, um, that that would be what we would call not a first-tier issue. Um, or something that we don't have to agree on um, to be. Yeah. yeah. Every church is making decisions about what they want in their membership covenant. So we wouldn't say 
baptism is mm-hmm. a first-tier issue either. Right, right. But we've said yep. that it's an issue important enough for our life together right. that you have to affirm that to be a member. Um, whereas we've said that there there's a, a place for you here if you are Arminian or you're not totally with us on God's sovereignty and salvation. And we'd say, you can still be a member here. We're glad to have you because you affirm the gospel, you love Jesus, and we're going to disagree about this area. So... Yeah, so the, the Congregation of Affirmation Faith does speak in a couple places towards the sovereignty of God and the need for grace, God's intervention in salvation. So just briefly here, um, this is the Article 3 on the Congregational Affirmation of Faith. We believe in God the Father, an infinite personal spirit, perfect in holiness, wisdom, power, and love. We believe that he infallibly foreknows all that shall come to pass. Um, so there is a, uh, a sense in which uh, any Orthodox believer across various creeds, confessions, etc., believes in the sovereignty of God in some broad sense. Mm. Um, and then when it goes, when we talk about salvation, this is Article Six under Regeneration in the Congregational Affirmation of Faith. Um, we believe that those who repent and forsake sin and trust Jesus Christ as Savior are regenerated by the Holy Spirit and become new creatures delivered from condemnation and receive eternal life. It's a little bit more uh, like uh, this is clearly what the evidence is of um, who is in Christ, those that repent and believe. Um, But the elder affirmation of faith takes a few swings deeper on both of those. Right. So both of those things that you just mentioned in Arminian could easily affirm those things. Absolutely. So, yeah. And maybe just a, you know, for the terminology's sake, Calvinism, you know, comes from, you know, Jean Calvin, um, who... Jean. He's French. Yeah, Jean, I, know, I know. Jean Calvin. Um, he's French. You know, he's a... Getting the real pronunciation a, a, a reformer podcast. theologian in the 1500s that wrote pretty extensively about the nature of God's sovereignty, wrote some systematic theologies that were meant for pastoral consumption. And then... Um, in a lot of ways, uh, his understanding of sovereignty went beyond, at least in details, where other reformers like Luther and even uh, you know people like Augustine, Augustine, whatever, you know, uh, some of the church fathers. It's Listen, certainly if you're going to say Jean, Jean, and you're not going to say Augustine, it'll be fine. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> so we're nerding out about how we pronounce various theologians' names here, I suppose. So give me a pass here, Nick. So. There are various people that talked about God's sovereignty all throughout church history, looking at their Bibles, reading their Bibles, and then Calvin just was a bit more detailed about it. And then there's a man, Jacob Arminius, who came along, another, uh, I'd say, reformer, who specifically in the area of salvation said that God's sovereignty is a bit asymmetrical with other spots. And then there was a response to that, the canons of Dort, where... Um, various uh, reformers came together and talked about Jacob Arminius's um, issues with some of Calvin's doctrine. And that's where those names come from. A Calvinist would be somebody who's a little adhering a little bit closer to the reformed heritage, not a little bit closer, a lot closer. Um, and what Jean Calvin said, and then there's just Jean, Jean Calvin said, and then, you know, Jacob Arminius and Arminians, uh, Jacob, um, I don't remember what what nationality, ethnicity, what what background he was, um, but he, you know, uh, said 
that the sovereignty of God is mitigated by some factor. So that's where those names are coming from. Calvinism, Arminianism, um, both Christians. To return to the elder affirmation of faith, uh, do you got that in front of you, Dave? You got the EAF in front of you? Yeah, I do. Why don't you read the... So I think what we'll do is address um, the first two paragraphs under Article 3, which is about God's eternal purpose and election. And then next time we get together, we'll talk about the third paragraph, which is a little bit more about uh, God's sovereignty and the salvation of men. So why don't you go ahead and read the first couple of paragraphs? Or actually, we can even just read the first paragraph. Let's talk about it, and then we'll come back to the second paragraph. We believe that God, from all eternity, in order to display the full extent of his glory, for the eternal and ever-increasing enjoyment of all who love him, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his will, freely and unchangeably ordain and foreknow whatever comes to pass. Nick, why does it say ordain and foreknow there, whereas in the Congregational Affirmation of Faith it only says foreknow? First of all, I'd appreciate it if you called me Nick. (laughs) Nicholas. (laughs) Nicholas. Um, (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Yeah, so what we're trying to do is saying not only did God look into the future, and see what was coming. In other words, he, he, like, he could see the future, right? And so everyone would affirm that who is orthodox uh, in some way. But we want to say not only did he do that, but he actually ordained everything that is coming to pass. Um, and so everything that is happening in all of creation, in the world, um, and you know, I think of the Spurgeon quote that says, we believe that God is meticulously ordaining Everything from the the movements of nations and um, you know the the decisions of kings and things that, on a grand scale in the world down to like the spray that comes off of a ship yep. and the molecules of water and the 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 moving of a, an aphid you know an insect God is ordaining all of those things <clears throat> in His meticulous sovereignty over the world. And we hold that uh, as um, people who love the sovereignty of God as true and precious truths, not something that um, needs to be fought against. Or sometimes people feel like God needs to be defended um, in his sovereignty, but we hold them as true and precious. And for me personally, that's because that means that the world isn't meaningless. It means that even the hard things that happen um, and you know, things that are hard to explain in God's sovereignty, they're not random, but they have a purpose and God's ways are bigger than our ways. And so we can rest in his plan and rest in his sovereignty, knowing that he's got a way bigger picture of everything. And if we knew everything that God knew, um, it wouldn't be a problem in our minds. So Psalm 29 is a pretty significant text in terms of the details in which God ordained. So um, this is Psalm of David talking about ascribing to the Lord, say about the Lord what is true, and then it's this repeated litany of the voice of the Lord does X, mm-hmm. the voice of the Lord does Y, everything from like big and mighty things, the voice of the Lord, this is Psalm 29, mm-hmm. 5, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, breaks the cedars of Lebanon, he makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. And then very interestingly, the voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. Like, 
Uh, and then this kind of litany and goes on other great mighty things, but it's all pointing towards this. If he's big over all of this, mm-hmm. very last uh, you know verse, may the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. So if he's big over all this, the crashing of cedars and Lord over the waves and Lord over the giving birth of animals, like he'll give strength to Israel. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a picture of God's big sovereignty over over all things in Psalm 29. Dave, what else would you add here? Again, ordains as a as a main idea from this particular paragraph. I would uh, maybe just fill in some scripture around it too, uh, yep. some kind of key text that we recite often at Bethlehem. So Ephesians 1.11 says, Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So he's, he's the one who works all things, everything Nick mentioned, kind of stuff from Psalm 29. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Isaiah 46, 9 to 10, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. Uh, Proverbs 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Or you could even, you know, you, you get to the Gospels and he's talking about sparrows um, and how not one of them will fall apart uh, from your father. So there's these just sweeping statements about his complete sovereignty in all things. Uh, I even think of Psalm, the Psalm 135 where it says, the Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, in heaven and on earth and above the earth or something. Some, that's a paraphrase, but I think it's Psalm 135. So just those are the kind of the undergirding texts. Yeah. That we think, go of a, to. think of a text like Romans 11, 33 through 36. You yeah. know, for from him and through him and to him are all, all things. things. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So and this is also historically what the church has confessed, not only mm-hmm. in the Reformed tradition, mm-hmm. although that's significant, and I'm going to read some of that here, but in but prior to that, mm-hmm. again, with some of the church fathers. Mm-hmm. This is um, the Second London Baptist Confession, uh, Chapter 5, Article 1, or Article 5, Paragraph 1, uh, depending on how you're splitting it apart. God, the good creator of all things in his infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence to the end for the which they were created according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Like everything, greatest to least, yep. according to his will. So um, this brings in a question at that the second uh, paragraph gets at um, in the Elder Affirmation of Faith article, Three, paragraph two. Do you want to read Article Three, paragraph two, again, Dave? Uh, read it, and uh, we'll, I'll bring up my question. We can talk about it. Sure. It says we believe that God upholds and governs all things, from galaxies to subatomic particles, from the forces of nature to the movements of nations, from the public plans of politicians to the secret acts of solitary persons, all in accord with His eternal all-wise purposes to glorify himself, yet in such a way that he never sins, nor ever condemns a person unjustly, but that his ordaining and governing all things is compatible 
with the moral accountability of all persons created in his image. So if God ordains all things that come to pass, including public, private, and even sinful choices Mm -hmm. by people, talk me through that. So uh, it asserts there uh, in in our elder affirmation of faith, that he is not the one responsible. It may, there is a way that his sovereignty over all things is compatible with the actual sinful responsibility of mankind. Talk me through that a little bit. Talk me through why we think that's actually what the Bible teaches um, and not just you know uh, an easy philosophical out. Yeah, so this is one of the things that people feel like they have to defend God against, right? Sure. Is that if he's or- ordaining and in control and sovereign over all things... That includes, well, first, I mean, even bigger category, that includes things like, you know, natural disasters and things that bring suffering um, in the world. And, um, you know, I think of a text like Amos 3.6. It says, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Um, and it's obviously a rhetorical question. It means, no, a disaster does not come to a city unless the Lord has done it. So even those types of things are in his control. Um, and and then even getting more you know, specific, like Daniel said, it, God ordaining and being sovereign over sinful actions. And so I, I just think about, um, you know, in Acts where, um, is it Peter? I think it's Peter who is talking about um, the crucifixion. Mm. And it's in the, Acts two, yeah, yep. in Acts yep. two, and it's the the greatest sin that's ever been committed is crucifying the completely innocent, you know, Jesus, Jesus. Um, and he says that the people who did that, Herod and you know the Romans and the people who crucified him, they only did what God's hand and God's plan had foredestined or predestined and foreordained to take place. Um, which is the greatest sin ever committed. And so even there, he affirms God's sovereignty over human sinful actions. Um, And we also believe that just because God ordained it to happen, they still chose to do those things with their free will. In other words, God's ordaining never trumps the human will. And what what we believe about that is that all humans are sinful, so sinful, in fact, that all we can do is rebel against God and sin— without the power of his spirit working in our hearts yep. to give us a new heart. Yep. So, of course they did that in, according to their own will, even though God ordained it. And so it's this mystery of God's sovereignty and the human will working together, but they chose those things, and so they're morally culpable. Yeah. So it's not Acts 2, it's actually Acts 4. Acts 4, okay. And the yeah. response of the people to the persecution of the apostles, mm-hmm. um, they quote Psalm 2. Um, this is Acts four twenty four. When they heard... It like uh, what it you know the the threat of persecution like we will the chief priests saying to the apostles stop it when they heard it the church together they lifted their voices together to God and said sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them who through the mouth of our father David your servant said by the Holy Spirit then quotes Psalm two why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed for truly in this city. They were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, which we'd all say, you know, alignment against God and his anointed is sin. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Next verse, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Like, yeah, and I think, and I think Nick was talking about Acts 2 because it's almost the exact same thing in verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite oh, plan yeah. and foreknowledge you of God. Yep. You crucified. So same thing. Yeah. Your hands. Yep. He even it's says, both. Yeah. He says, yeah. So, yeah. so it's the same concept. I had both, both, both of those chapters. in mind. Yeah. Yep. I, was, I was thinking of Acts 4 when, when you were talking. Well, that's good. So there's even like, do we see this in the Old Testament? Like, do we see this kind of sovereignty? Is this just a one-off thing centered around Jesus? Or is it bigger? You quoted Amos. Mm-hmm. You know, there, here's like, if if a does disaster come upon a city and the Lord doesn't ordain it? I think I think one of the biggest places you could go is when uh, is going to the plagues with uh, Pharaoh, and we see uh, God harden Pharaoh's heart, mm-hmm. and then we see oh, and, and, then, and then we see Pharaoh harden his own heart, right? right. And when we see uh, God say, "I'm doing this so that my name would be great yeah. in all the earth." Or even back in Act, is it in Exodus two, where he tells Moses on Mount Sinai? That's right. Yep. Before anything happens, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Like you're going to do this, and the response is going to be this, and I'm going to harden his heart so that I get more glory mm-hmm. on the back end of this by by uh, shaming the Egyptians, and I think ultimately they're gods. Which Paul even brings up in Romans nine. Yep. Yeah. Um, when he's making this sweeping case of God's sovereignty over the sin and uh, rejection of Jesus by Israel. Yeah. And so he picks up on that exact same thing. Exactly. I think one other text that I think is significant. So the, the call in second Chronicles 30 by Hezekiah for all of it. So King Hezekiah was one of the last good Kings of Judah. He did um, a lot of good reforms. Um, He makes a broad call for repentance and a return to keeping the Passover, which if you're reading your Old Testament carefully, the Passover was not consistently kept um, by, mm. by the various risings and falls of the various Old Testament, um, you know, the, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And so he sent out a letter like, we need to keep Passover, we need to turn, we need to repent. And then interestingly, it, it kind of gives us a little account of how some of the different tribes Responded. So he sends these couriers out with this message. This is Second Chronicles chapter three, verse ten. This message: Return to the Lord, repent. Um, and the couriers went from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, and as far as Zebulun, but they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. However, some of the men of Asher, of Manasseh, and of Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. What's the difference between those that are certainly explicitly about Judah mm-hmm. and others? God's hand is on them. Right. Such that he, like it, it's obvious, like stop sinning all of Israel. Right. Stop it. Like come, come back, mm-hmm. come back to stop it. Have you ever seen that? I'm sorry. That's a, uh, can't remember which comedian that is. Um, you're supposed to stop your sin and come back. And yet, under that call, that good call that is is ultimately from God, God is working in hearts so that only some of them actually come. Right. Um, so there's almost a, a sense in which we would say there are two wills in God, one that's mysterious 
and impenetrable by which he ordains everything that comes to pass. Mm-hmm. And another by which it's clear, it's his revealed will, most um, clearly enshrined in scripture. So we can say things like, what's happening right now in East Europe is not outside his control. In fact, it's ordained mm-hmm. by him in some sense for his purposes, which are legion and we can't penetrate or figure out, which is the way that we think about God's sovereignty and salvation too. Right. Anything else you'd say about this topic broadly talking about the sovereignty of God before hopefully next time we, we dig back in. Yeah, I would, well, I'll, yeah, I'll go first. And then, um, I would just say the reason that we hold these things is because we see them in scripture. So we want to make sure that we're being intensely biblical in these doctrines. And we realize that they can be hard for people to think through and to accept. Um, and these are hard, uh, they can, they can be hard doctrines emotionally. Um, and so we want to acknowledge that and be really, you know, gentle and um, just always pointing back to Scripture as the reason that we believe these things. Because we hold up the Bible as the ultimate authority and the revelation of God's purposes and plans in the world. So um, that's why we're pointing to texts, because we want to be biblical about this and grounded in that instead of just human philosophy and, and wisdom. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, I think I think there's... Uh just to Nick's point, we're going to get into the salvation narrowing of God's sovereignty here next episode. But to Nick's point, I think just to uh, feel the freedom to live in the tension. You know, God God is ultimately sovereign. Uh, you know, and we could talk about Romans nine and how that works in salvation. And yet, a verse that says God desires all men to be saved. Right. So the two wills of God. Mm-hmm. Thing, but God is ultimately yeah. sovereign. He is going to work all of His purposes for His glory, and um, that that does become. I mean, I think I think Psalm twenty nine is all about. Look at all this power of the voice of the Lord. It's all aimed for your good if you're one of His people. And I, that's what I would say when it comes even to a text like Romans eight twenty eight. All things work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Mm-hmm. So. Even when we don't understand it, and many a times as a pastor, I sit with someone and I say, "I don't, I don't understand all the purposes right now. What I what I know is He's sovereign because of His Word, and what I know is that He's for you, uh, and all of His sovereignty is working for you in mysterious ways that are going to get you to Him ultimately, uh, where you'll enjoy His glory forever. And I know that we'll look back and and go, "Oh yeah." That's exactly uh, what what had to happen. You know, I often I often use the analogy. I just think it's helpful um, that there are a lot of things that I have to say and do to my kids, uh, whether it's discipline or saying no or whatever that they don't get. Uh, they they don't get, and it's because they can only see a fraction of the picture that I can see, uh, and the distance between what I can see and what my kids can see. And what I can see versus what God can see, right? right? That 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 gap is way bigger between me and God than even me and my three-year-old daughter. And so, one of the phrases that's been helpful to me too in dealing with the the difficulty of it, and Nick alluded to this earlier, is that we would do what God does if we knew what God knows. And there is a there is an element of just we believe it and we trust it and we. 
have the freedom to go to him with our struggle with it too and say, I don't get it, but I'm trusting you. Amen. Looking forward to continuing this conversation, guys.